Okay. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, greetings from the South Asia, um, uh, the, the Modern South Asia seminar here in Oxford, UK. Um, I hope this finds you all um, doing okay in these troubled times. Troubled, but now rather more hopeful times, um, I think, than uh, was the case uh, yesterday. Well, today we're absolutely delighted um, to have with us Professor Cynthia Talbot from the Department of History um, at the University of Austin in Texas. Um, Professor Talbot will be known to very many of you, um, a leading historian of medieval and early modern India. Her first book, Pre-Colonial India in Practice, Society, Region and Identity in Medieval Andhra, published in 2001, was an absolutely path-breaking exploration of the, the complex layers of political and cultural affiliation which shaped the important state of the Kakatiyas based in the warrior lineages of medieval Andhra. And the ways in which these lineages mapped themselves onto a subcontinent that was increasingly exposed to the power and also the opportunities of the Mughal North. Professor Talbot's interest in historical memory and its role in shaping identities and relationships of many kinds has really marked out her subsequent work and made the case in a unique way, I think, amongst um, uh, historians of the early modern, made the case for the importance of memory and emotional regimes in the history of the subcontinent's warrior cultures. Her most recent book, The Last Hindu Emperor, Prithvi Raj Chauhan and the Indian Past 1200 to 2000, published in 2016, won the Association for Asian Studies A.K. Kumaraswamy Book Prize, a very prestigious prize um, for the best English language scholarly work um, on South Asia. So it's an enormous pleasure to welcome Professor Talbot, who will talk to us today on the theme of Rajput loyalties in the Mughal uh, age. Just to let you know um, that at the end of um, uh, Professor Talbot's talk, there will be a short opportunity for those of you who would like to email, to not email, who would like to um, uh, put questions to Professor Talbot, please do so if you'd like to via the Q&A box that should be there um, uh, at, at the bottom of your screens. If you send in questions, um, I'll pick I'll pick ones that that uh, seem to be most pertinent and um, Professor Talbot will have a short chance to respond. Well, thank you very much indeed once again, everyone, for joining us and Professor Talbot, over to you. Thank you very much for inviting me and this is a, a great opportunity for me to introduce some of my recent work. I've uh, slightly changed the uh, title of my talk uh, once I, I realized that the previous title is actually very close to the title of an article by Norman Ziegler. Uh, so I've changed mine to uh, Competing Loyalties to King and King in Akbar's India, which gives you a little bit more information about what I'm trying to do today. 
So I'd like to reflect on the issue of loyalty in Mughal era India, and I'll do so through a brief exploration of the histories of three sets of brothers from separate warrior lineages of Rajasthan. Uh, the Harat Chauhans, uh, based in Bundi. Okay, I'm trying to get my uh, PowerPoint to work here. For, excuse, and it is not. There we are. So the Harat uh, Chauhans, based in Bundi, over here. Uh, the Rators of Bikaner, up here and the Sisodias of Mewar, who were based in Chittor over here at the time. Now this map, of course, shows the various kingdoms in the colonial era when the boundaries, boundaries were very, very fixed, uh, but that wasn't the case at all in the time frame we were considering. Now the brothers I'm looking at were all active in the midst of rapid political change and dramatic fluctuations in territorial control during the 1560s and 1570s. In these decades, they, the Mughal Emperor Akbar was making deep inroads into the regions of Rajasthan and Gujarat. An increasing number of Rajput lineages had joined the Mughal bandwagon following Akbar's successful siege. Excuse me, his successful siege of Chittor in 1568. But some lineages such as the Sisodias of Udaipur and the Rators of Jodhpur were still resisting the Mughals from the hills. Let's see if this will work. This is a little video that I always like to show in my classes. Ah, I think it is not working. Oh, there it goes. So the 15, this is Humayun, and then we get Akbar spreading very quickly in the 1560s and 1570s. Okay. So in this era of considerable flux and turmoil, when a lawyer, there were many occasions when a warrior's loyalties might come into conflict. The potential for conflict is one of the intriguing aspects of loyalty for most people have multiple loyalties. Uh, nowadays, for instance, to family, friends, bosses, companies, communities, religions, etc. In the context of 16th century Rajasthan, the question of political allegiance was particularly acute since kinship bonds, both by descent and by marriage, were so significant in shaping military alliances among Rajputs. In some parts of Western Rajasthan, the dominant men were the brotherhoods or Bhai Band, or descendants of male king who had conquered certain localities and parceled out the lands. While these brotherhoods had started out fairly egalitarian in character, this was no longer true in most cases, even before the Mughal conquest. The consolidation of power within martial lineages had led to greater hierarchy between different branches of the same clan, as well as the proliferation of what Norman Ziegler has called ruler-client relations. So I have a small quote from him here at the bottom of this uh, PowerPoint slide. Uh, saying that while the institutions of rulership and clientship existed in Rajasthan prior to the Mughal period, they developed greatly during the 16th and 17th century at the expense of kinship as a basis of organization. So even within the ruling families, more power uh, now accrued to the brother who succeeded to the throne. All three sets of brothers I'm focusing on had to deal with the expansionism of the Mughals in some fashion, and in the process experienced great strains in their own family relationships. So in the case of the Sisodias of Mewar, who I'll talk about first, 
Uh, two brothers confronted each other at the famous battle of Haldigati in 1576, which led to a stalemate between the Mughals and the Sisodias, who then retreated to the hills and avoided submission to the empire until 1615. Uh, in the case of the Hara Chohans of Bundi, there was a rift between brothers after one of them rebelled against the Mughals in, in 1577, eight years or so after their father had surrendered the fort of Rantambur and submitted to Akbar. In the last case, the Rators of Bikaner joined the Mughal banner voluntarily in 1570, but the eldest son later had trouble keeping his younger brothers from offending the emperor. And there's an incident that I'll be discussing that occurred between the brothers in 1577. So today's presentation is part of a larger project I'm engaged in on martial sentiments in the heroic histories of Rajasthan. I use the term sentiments to broadly indicate what we today generally refer to as emotions. But some emotional dimensions or emotional registers that were meaningful in the past may not be so to us today. Uh, a good example of this is honor, which the, a scholar from early modern Europe, Ute Frevert, describes as a lost emotion and a disposition whose emotional power has more or less vanished. So in that connection, it's interesting to think about the word Hindi word lodge, which is usually translated as shame today, but in early modern texts, it's really closer to honor. In other words, having a sense of shame was what constituted warrior honor. So by focusing on loyalty, I hope to add to our understanding of uh, what we might call the ethos or the values of the worldview of the Rajput warrior community, which is a topic that's really been surprisingly neglected. Now, in this project on martial sentiments, I draw on several texts produced at the courts of Rajput subordinates of the Mughals during the long 17th century. That is from about 1580 to 1690 or so. These works emanating from Rajput courts and often named after a noble patron are composed in a variety of languages and genres. Uh, some are elaborate Sanskrit poems in the Mahakavya style. Others are bardic texts in Dingal verse or prose chronicles in the dialect called Middle Marathi. And then there are Braj Bhasha poems like those studied by the late Alison Bush of Columbia University, who was only 50 years old when she died a little over a year ago, uh, tragically cutting short a brilliant career. I share Allison's interest in bringing scholarly attention to these texts as works of history that provide a different vantage point into the Mughal Empire, which has largely been studied through the prism of Persian language texts. These Rajput histories can offer us uh, valuable insights into the experience of serving the Mughal emperors, as Alison Bush demonstrated in some of her last articles. Okay, now let me finally turn to my three case studies after this introduction. Each case study representing a different type of resolution to the family conflict occasioned by growing Mughal ascendancy under Akbar. So in order to make the difference a little bit clear, clearer, I'll uh, uh, label them according to what happened to a brother in each instance. So the first instance from Mewar is the brother who reappeared then secondly, the brother who was elided. And then thirdly, the brother who elided himself. Okay, so I'll begin with Mewar, the example of the 
brother who reappeared in the family history. His name was Susodhya Sakat Singh or Shakti Singh in Sanskrit, a younger brother of the celebrated Rana Pratap. Now you're looking now at a much later painting of the famous uh, Battle of Haldigati. Uh, and this actual painting was brought to England by Colonel James Todd from Udaipur in the early 19th century and set the uh, Royal Asiatic Society now. This battle occurred in 1576 and you see in the middle of, of the painting, the combat between Rana Pratap of Mewar seated on uh, his famous horse Chetak and then Raja Man Singh of Amer from the Kachwaha clan in the Haudah here. Uh, he was the lead general on the Mughal side. So I'll give you Sakat Singh's story, which is distilled from a number of variant traditions. Sometime in the late, in the early 1560s, he's said to have left Mewar either because he was exiled by his father or due to animosity with his brother Pratap. The Akbar Nama, the official history of Akbar's reign written in Persian, states that Sakat Singh served in the Mughal military for a while until he was told by Akbar about the Mughal plans to attack Chitor, the capital of Mewar, and he was asked what he would contribute to that effort. Not wanting to fight against his family and kingdom, he abruptly left Mughal service, returned to Mewar, and supposedly informed the defenders of Chittor Fort about the emperor's intentions. But they didn't trust him and would not allow him entry into the fort, which eventually fell to Akbar in 1568 after a bitter siege. Prevented from joining in the fight, Sakat Singh resided on the periphery of Mewar for years and became known as a strong but impetuous uh, for warrior. Now eventually Sakat Singh found himself at the famous Battle of Haldigati of 1576 with a contingent that was fighting against his brother Pratap, now the Rana of Mewar. See if I can get to the next slide here. There we go. So this is a blow up of the center. It's a famous scene that's replicated in lots of paintings, especially from the early uh, 19th century. But here's Pratap here with his uh, lance and he was trying to get Man Singh over here, but failed. And then the elephant is supposed to have injured his, uh, his horse. So when this happened, he left, Rana Pratap left the battlefield. And supposedly watching on the sidelines, his brother Sakat Singh saw that Pratap was unaware of two pursuers. Then out of affection, one text says, that is Sneha, affection, out of affection for his brother, Sakat Singh warned him of the danger and joined him in killing the two enemies. Afterwards, Rana Pratap said that his brother was a Hitakari, a benefactor, well-wisher, a friend. Sakat Singh was given land in Mewar later on, and his descendants became one of the kingdom's leading lineages. Now, this is a heartwarming narrative of a brother who went astray but came back to the fold. Uh, he switched his allegiance temporarily, but in the end, he did the right thing, at least from Mewar's perspective. Whatever the reason for his earlier abandonment of family and kingdom, Sakat Singh made up for it by coming to his brother's aid at a crucial moment. And so he was reconciled with his brother after this public display of affection and allegiance. Brother stood with brother in a time of calamity, as brothers should do 
or so the Ramayana suggests in its depiction of Lakshmana, who accompanied his elder brother Rama on his years of exile. In that epic, of course, all of Rama's brothers stand firm in their support of the firstborn son and his right to rule. It's their stepmother, Kaikei, who's responsible for Rama's exile and the consequent uh, disruption to the orderly succession to the throne. The Mahabharata is also an epic about solidarity between brothers, even though two sets of brothers who are cousins go on to fight a bloody war. Uh, much more could be said about fraternal bonds in the classical Indian epics, but my point here is that both of these epics stress the importance of brothers as allies. Now, the story of Sakat Singh rescuing his brother during the most critical battle of Rana Pratap's reign has been highly popular in Mewar, as you might expect. Unfortunately, it does not appear to be true. While Akbar Nama confirms Sakat Singh's presence at the Mughal court until some time before the assault on Chittor, neither it nor any other contemporary account of the Battle of Haldi Ghati places Sakat Singh at that momentous event. And the first very brief mention of it comes a century later, at the same time that a number of poems produced at the Mewar court were glorifying Rana Pratap, so in the uh, 1670s, under the reign of uh, Rana Raj Singh. Uh, the mention of him comes in two texts. Uh, there's, I think, maybe three verses in Sagat Raso, which is a Dingle uh, Bardic um, verse work. And then in Raja Prasasti, which is Sanskrit Mahakavya, there's about five verses referring to Sagat Singh. So the memory of Sagat Singh may have been retrieved and re reworked as part of a trend of lionizing Rana Pratap uh, in the uh, 1670s and 80s. Who, uh, because Rana Pratap came to signify the essence of Sisodia heroism. Now, uh, this isn't to deny that Sakat Singh left Mughal service and returned to Mewar sometime before the Mughal invasion of the kingdom, just that he wasn't at the 1576 battle. He may have actually been dead by then, and so he could not have come to his brother's aid. Um, Sakat Singh's case is interesting, however, for it illustrates the relative ease with which Rajputs switched their allegiances, at least in this early phase of Mughal expansion. This is contrary to what one might expect from occasional textual condemnations of those who fail to support the lords whose salt they have eaten. Uh, salt being uh, namak from, uh, from the Persian or in Rajasthani, lun. So namak haram is... Uh, well-known phrase about uh, being untrue to one's salt. That is uh, being disloyal to somebody who's, um, you know, who's giving you a livelihood. A similar notion of obligation towards one lord or master appears in the expression Swami Dharma, which finds increasing mention in Rajput texts from the late 16th century onward. However, a close look at the context in which Swami Dharma occurs reveal a pretty restricted definition. It really means the duty to fight in battle for the Lord to, uh, to the point of death if necessary. So your Swami Dharma is to die in battle for your master. So while uh, Rajput is in someone's military service, which in Rajasthani text is called Chawakari, but may be better known to you uh, by the word Nokari, uh, a Rajput who was uh, in Chakri or Chakar 
He was expected to fight in return for the land or other sustenance he received from his Lord, but nothing prevented him from giving those up and going elsewhere. So while this issue needs more study, I suspect there was a fair amount of agency uh, for these fighters uh, in choosing who they wanted to serve. Okay, let me turn to the second case now, that of the brother who was elided from his family history. And this was a Hara clan Rajput from Buindi. He's variously called Duda or Dauda or Duryodhana, depending on the text. But he's entirely absent from the first of the Hara's several dynastic histories, which was a Sanskrit Mahakavya entitled Surjana Charita. And much of this lengthy text covers the life of Duda's father, Surjan, the first Hara lord to submit to Mughal overlordship. This occurred after he surrendered the fort of Rantambur, the Akbar, in 1569. And so you're looking at uh, two pages from the uh, Akbar Nama, the illustrated imperial volume. Uh, it was actually, I think, earned five illustrations, so it was a big deal from the Akbar, Akbar's viewpoint. And so over on the left, we see uh, the siege of the fort with these uh, big guns over here, very long guns. And uh, Rantambor is famous for being on a sort of a cliff, as you see. And then over here, we have the actual surrender submission of Surjan, the father here. He's being sort of guided in how to uh, bow down properly. And this is actually Akbar uh, shown here. Now, Surjan went on to become a high-ranking Mansabdar, or imperial office holder, and his last posting was at Tunar, right outside of Banaras, where he died in 1585. According to Surjana Charita, this lord of Bundi was succeeded by his son Bhoj, who we see here, uh, and there's no other offspring mentioned at all. Now, Akbar Nama tells us a different story. It states that Rai Surjan had a son named Doda, who went, quote, to his native country of Bundi and opened the hand of oppression, end quote. That is, he rebe rebelled or refused to be subservient to the Mughal Empire. So uh, the army that was sent out on that occasion uh, wasn't able to subdue Duda, so a second army had to be sent out in 1577, which included both his father, Surjan, and his brother, Bhoj. Uh, it too was illustrated in the Akbar Nama, this is the Battle of Bundi. Now, Boj is in the Akbar Nama, he's said to have taken an active part in assaulting the troops of his brother, who we learn elsewhere was actually the firstborn son of Surjan, so Boj is actually the second. Both the brother and father were rewarded for their role in quelling Duda's bid for independence. After his older brother was finally forced out of the Bundi region, this homeland of the Hardas was entrusted to Bhoj, while Sujan's Mansab rank was raised to 2,000 Zat, which was a very high rank in the days of Akbar. Then the following year after the battle, in 1578, Aduda made an appearance at the Mughal court, but he soon left without permission, and he died a few years later in 1585, unreconciled with both the empire and his family. So this is, these are the two texts uh, that I'm 
uh, be talking about. I have just mentioned the Sudhajanacharita up here on the top to you. This is the first of the Harda uh, histories. So this elder brother, Duda, was wiped out of the public record in the form of this elaborate family history that is Sudhajanacharita. But his fa family didn't forget him. Duda resurfaces under the name Duryodhana in a second Sanskrit poem relating to the Haras of Bundi, Shatrushalya Charita, which comes from about 1635. Now he's called Duryodhana, which of course was the eldest of the wicked Kaurava brothers in the Mahabharata conflict. And so the poem implies that Duda was antagonistic by using this name for him. Yet overall, Satrushalya Charita presents Duda or Duryodhana in quite a positive light. First, by acknowledging that he was a legitimate ruler who had been assigned control of Bundi by his father, and secondly, by praising him as a mighty warrior. The only hint that Duda had any character flaws, aside from his being called Duryodhana, comes from the poet's observation that out of pride, Duda only bowed his head to the god Vishnu and to his father Surjan. So the Mughal Empire emperor is conspicuously missing from this list of people that he bowed his head to. Otherwise, in the poem, Duda differs from his father and brother primarily in his hatred, Duesha, for Akbar, who Boch calls his own associate, Sahakrutwan, and his father, Surjan's friend, Saki. In, in this second poem, uh, Boj is said to call uh, Akbar his father's friend and his own associate. Now with Duda and Boj, we have a situation in which one brother fought another, although perhaps not out of choice. Both Surjan and Boj had put their allegiance with the Mughals and thus their uh, official careers above their loyalty to a close relative. And the overlord trumped the son and brother in this instance. So it's not difficult to imagine why Boj, his father's successor as ruler of Bundi and the patron of Surjanacharita, the first of the works on the slide, it's not difficult to imagine why he might have wished his errant brother left out of the family history completed around 1590, still well into uh, Akbar's reign. By the time Satushalya Charita was composed in 1635 or so, more than 50 years had passed since Duda's re rebellion. Perhaps the decades of military service the Haras had provided to the empire in the interim were sufficient evidence of their loyalty so that they no longer had to be concerned about reclaiming Duda as part of their history. They might have even felt some pride uh, looking back over the decades in Duda's warlike spirit and the ability to resist. One thing did not change, however, Shatru uh, Shalya Charita, just like the earlier Surjana Charita, omits the fact that Boj took up arms against his older brother. So we can only infer that it was regarded as shameful for family members to fight each other. While the memory of Duda as a fearsome warrior who had resisted Mughal power could be resurrected half a century after he died, the truth that his father and brother had opposed him militarily was still best overlooked. Okay, I will move on now to the third brother. We've had the brother who reappeared in Shakti Singh and just now the brother who was elided, at least from the first history, that is Duda Harav Bundi. The third 
uh, set of brothers is up here in Bikaner. Now, Bikaner, uh, excuse me, I have a, something else to say. I got a little bit ahead of myself here. So I was talking about Duda uh, and how the fact that his brother and father had opposed him was being overlooked. Now, that might be true in the ideal world of uh, Sanskrit narratives, but in actual Rajput history, uh, it, we have many, many instances where brothers of ruling families competed for power and sometimes engaged in combat with each other. Uh, thus, for example, during a brief battle in 1564 in Mewar, uh, I'm sorry, in Marwar over here, a, Raj, a Rajput named Udai Singh is said to have struck a blow against his younger brother, Rao Chandrasen, the Rator ruler of Jodhpur. So we have a case where an older brother didn't get the throne and he actually is supposed to have hit his uh, younger brother, the Raja, with a weapon. Or we have the case of Jagmal Viram Devot, who became a chakar or military servant of Rao Malde of Jodhpur, the ruler of Jodhpur, after his own brother, the Jagmal's brother Jaimal, became the chief of the Rators of Merta. So he didn't get to be the chief himself, his brother got to be the chief, and so he joined his um, brother's enemy as a military servant. And then the Jodhpur ruler, the enemy of his brother, promptly conquered Merta and gave it half of it to his chakar or his military servant, Jagmal, the brother of the ousted chief. So we could actually go on and on because they're, uh, you know, Rajput texts really depict their heroes, especially Rajput texts from Marwar, depict their heroes as intent on wresting away local territory from the rivals who were often kinsmen. So the focus on regaining home territory, the importance of that, meant that Rajput lords seemingly had no compunctions about seeking support from a powerful ruler that was based some distance away, regardless of his religious faith. So in history books, uh, we usually have uh, mentions of incursions or invasions of Muslim outsiders into Rajasthani uh, affairs. But when you look at uh, Rajput chronicles, especially one like Munhat and Nancy's Kyat, uh, the internal perspective shows it as uh, more like an invited expedition by this outside ruler, uh, which was meant to assist a power struggle between local Rajputs. Okay, now to Bikaner. <clears throat> so this is the brother who elided himself uh, he was a Rator clansman from Bikaner up here, and his name was Ram Singh Kalyan Malod. I say that he elided himself because one day in July 1577, Ram Singh courted death deliberately, that he chose to die in a battle that he provoked in the face of competing loyalties that he could not reconcile. His problem was being a second son repeatedly caught between his domineering older brother, Raja Singh of Bikaner, on the one hand, and his troublemaking younger brothers on the other. Well, here we have a picture, a portrait of the older brother, the Raja, Rai Singh of Bikaner. And he had, I think, uh, nine brothers 
with Ram Singh as the second and a number of others who appear uh, in the records. Now, like the Sisodias of <coughs> Mewar and the Harachohans of Bundi, during the 1570s, Ram Singh's lineage was adjusting to the intrusion of Mughal power into, into Rajasthan. The Bikaner Rathors were early allies of the Mughals, joining them in 1570. Ram Singh's older brother, Rai Singh, assisted Akbar in his Gujarat campaign of 1573. <clears throat> as well as in Mughal efforts to take over the Jodhpur kingdom, and eventually Rai Singh became one of Akbar's most important nobles. Before his death in 1612, early on in Jahangir's reign, Raja Rai Singh had risen to the high Mansab rank of 4,000 Zad. He was a great patron of, of bards and poets who left behind, behind many flattering accounts of, this, of the Raja. The prose chronicle I'm consulting, however, remembers Raja Rai Singh quite differently. It's called Dalpat Vilas, and it's probably a critical of Raja Rai Singh because it was written for one of his sons, Dalpat, who uh, rebelled against his father around the time the text was composed. So this is just the cover of the one uh, um, published edition of the chronicle, which also only exists in one surviving incomplete uh, manuscript. <clears throat> Dalpat Vilas presents Raja Rai Singh unfavorably as a bad-tempered man who was worried about Akbar's opinion of him. The Raja chastises brother Ram Singh on one occasion for dining with another Rajput lord who was still resisting Mughal control because Rai Singh was worried that the emperor might hear of this, of his brothers eating with an enemy and disapprove. On another occasion, occasion, the Raja got infuriated at the behavior of one of Ram Singh's retainers. This retainer had acted in an insolent manner when the Raja's troops were being inspected by an imperial paymaster, a bakshi. Uh, lords in imperial service had to maintain armed troops at a number that was commensurate with their rank, and their compliance with this requirement was assessed by the imperial officials sent out for that purpose. So in being rude to the imperial paymaster, Ram Singh retainer was being disrespectful to the emperor, and in his rage, the Raja ordered both Ram Singh and the retainer killed. Luckily, the Rani was able to dissuade her husband from harming his own brother. While Ram Singh did his best to act as his royal brother wished, their other brothers did not. One of them, Amrahir, uh, stole a herd of imperial she-camels, and his men fought ferociously when the Raja ordered his son Dalpat to retrieve the animals for the emperor's sake, and this uh, fight led to numerous fatalities. Amra wanted to retaliate against uh, the Raja, but Ram Singh advised him not to destroy their relationship with him. Apan Raja Jisun Thorni Nihiche Time and again, we find Ram Singh in this role of mediating between the divergent interests of his brothers. Two other brothers, uh, Surtan and Prithiraj, uh, also supplemented their village income by looting and plundering. When they tried to get Ram Singh to stay with them after his wife died, he refused, citing their violent or oppressive behavior 
Ajajati, which was causing distress to their royal brother Raising. So uh, to the Raja, Raja Ji Nun Duhavisya. I must not cause the Raja pain, Ram Singh said. They insisted that they would not be violent and Ram Singh went to live with them temporarily. But this, despite their assurances, Sultan and Prithiraj soon went back to their old ways and they start, they harassed some local uh, jats and merchants, Baniyas, and seized their goods, leading to an argument between the brothers. Ram Singh told them, if you will despoil the land of the Rajaji, then you must let me depart. So Rasing was in a quandary. Uh, on the one hand, he had this authoritarian older brother and ruler who sought to exercise control over his younger brothers so as to avoid any censure or displeasure from the imperial master. At least of, uh, one of the Raja's other brothers, uh, Prithiraj, is known to have fought on behalf of the empire and been record, uh, rewarded accordingly. Yet these younger brothers seem unwilling to entirely give up their older ways of raiding and plundering, uh, presumably unarmed commoners, but regardless of their brother overlord's wishes, uh, they wouldn't give it up. So as the second oldest, it fell on Ram Singh to keep his younger brothers in line, or so the Raja, the elder brother, seemed to assume. The realization that the younger ones wouldn't heed his advice made Ram Singh anxious, and so he decided, because of this, I quote, because of this, it would be good, bhala, if I were to die. Accordingly, Ram Singh intentionally provoked a quarrel with the Raja's young son, Dalpat, and his men, some of whom had past grievances against Ram Singh. And then Ram Singh provokes this quarrel, and then he goes to stay near these, this small war, war band of men who oppose him. When these Rajputs heard that Ram Singh was nearby and vulnerable without his brothers and other allies by his side, they hurried off to attack Ram Singh without even asking permission of Dalpat, their ostensible master who was only about 12 or 13. When these masters came after him with their gunners in front, Ram Singh leapt into battle without any armor on and died almost immediately. Afterward, the young Dalpat, who had not been able to stop these support, supposedly subordinate Rajputs from attacking his uncle, got angry and rebuked them. Ram Singh had thus been placed in an untenable position, for there was no way for him to be simultaneously loyal to his younger brothers as well as to the Raja. So in the end, he sought death as the only resolution to this emotional dilemma. He took himself out of the picture. That's what I meant by he elided himself. And this instance of tension between brothers from Bikaner differs from the Mewar and uh, Bundi cases in that the pressure from the Mughal emperor is more indirect. Akbar is not personally calling for Ram Singh's allegiance or obedience. Uh, instead, it's his brother who demands it, uh, his brother who demands his allegiance in his capacity, both as elder brother and as lord. The competing loyalties in this case are being generated within the royal family, and the conflict is mainly internal. Now, I'm going to change the slide so you can look at something different for the rest of my talk. Uh, this is a fort, the Junagar fort uh, in Bikaner that was actually built by uh, Raja Raising.
Now, the, ca the case studies that I've just discussed suggest that Rajput audiences preferred an imagined world in which brothers were loyal and did not harm each other. Uh, Sakat Singh could readily be assimilated in Sisodia historical memory 100 years after the fact, despite his initial affiliation with the Mughals, because he never participated in any action against the interests of the family. And in allegedly rescuing his brother, the Rana, from probable death, Sakat Singh was simultaneously demonstrating his political loyalty to Melar. The case of Ram Singh that I just discussed is, is more fraught because fighting did occur and death ensued. Still, Ram Singh didn't openly rebel against his brother, the Lord, uh, Raja Rai Singh. Instead, he engaged in self-sacrifice by bringing about his own death. In some ways, the most problematic of the three is Duda Bundi, who was restored in his family history some 50 years after his death. This suggests that having a rebel against the Mughals in a family's past was not something that had to be kept hidden indefinitely. But the continuing silence about the participation of the father and brother in the Mughal attacks on Duda is very telling. Okay? Well, this was something that their descendants did not want to publicize. What had whatever had actually happened between brothers, therefore, Rajput narratives favored accounts of brotherly loyalty and sacrifice and sought to repress the presence of strife within the family. Now, these case studies have shown, though, that uh, Rajput warriors were often torn between their political loyalties and their familiar ones. Uh, this is a point that's been made by others before, especially by Norman Ziegler in his article that I referenced earlier. Rapidly fluctuating political fortunes, fortunes could exacerbate the situation, especially when there were relatively new overlords like Akbar, uh, who people didn't really know in advance how to deal with. Uh, brothers and sons made different decisions about how to deal with Mughal military superiority, uh, whether they should offer various forms of resistance, sometimes not immediately overt, or instead whether they acquiesce, which meant, of course, having to go fight on behalf of further imperial expansion, uh, but also secured them local, locally stable positions. Uh, so these decisions could in turn determine the nature of the relationships within a warrior family. But even otherwise, that is even before the Mughals, uh, Rajput brothers could be fierce rivals. Uh, this isn't to deny the strength of familial ties in many instances, especially when it came to vengeance there for a relative's death. Again, the Rajput narratives, especially from Western Rajasthan, are full of uh, feuds and uh, revenge. Uh, brothers, sons, and even fathers might bide their time before taking revenge. And so actually one of the men who led the assault on Ram Singh of Bikaner, the brother who elided himself, uh, this man was the father of someone Ra Ram Singh had killed years earlier on behalf of his own father, the previous Raja. And several of Ram Singh's younger brothers, Sultan Prithiraj and Amra, uh, often acted in concert and protected each other. Amra was actually uh, later killed on Akbar's uh, command in 1591 for, quote, uh, be disobedience and practicing violence. So he seems to have continued in the plundering ways. But these three brothers uh, often were together and they did protect each other militarily. But at the very highest levels of the political hierarchy, the first and second sons of ruling families, uh, there was uh, 
commonly contestation between male kings, kin. I'm placing a lot of emphasis on this point about fraternal strife because too often our discussions of Mughal India focus only on discourses of difference. That is discourses that articulate group identities and differentiate one group from another, particularly Muslim from Hindu. Uh, but hostility in early modern narratives is not limited to the sociologically distinct community of Muslims, but it's also frequently directed at other Rajput groups whose social identities were similar. Uh, in other words, in some Mughal era narratives, Rajputs opposed other Rajputs, while Muslims were either a remote threat or were actively solicited as allies by one side or the other. So this means we need to break the habit of attributing enmity only to social difference. <clears throat> not only does, <clears throat> excuse me, not only does familiarity breed contempt, but the most acrimonious disputes often occur within a family. <coughs> In ending, um, I'd like to raise a couple of questions about loyalty in the study of emotion history. How do we char characterize loyalty? For like honor, it's not something we might immediately classify as an emotion today. Is it instead a quality or a condition, a state or a, con uh, a quality, a state or a condition? These are words that the dictionaries have used to describe it. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary ascribes two basic meanings to loyalty. The first is faithful adherence to one's promise, oath, word of honor. And the second is faithful adherence to the sovereign or loyal government. If the internet is any indicator, however, the most widespread use of the word loyalty nowadays is in relation to customers and their attachment to a particular brand, a form of fidelity in a way. Um, so my, I, I do have a question about what we mean about loyalty and how we define it. Secondly, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because I think I'm running out of time. Secondly, does it matter that there are no, no clear equivalents to loyalty in Indian languages? And this has been bothering me, so I would welcome some discussion of this point. But I've already mentioned the ideas of Chakri and Swami Dharma, but they refer more to a warrior's obligation in my mind, and sort of lack the sense of passionate attachment that one often finds in loyalty. Uh, or we could use the more religiously oriented language of devotion and servitude, bhakti or seva or dasya, which also emphasizes uh, self-sacrifice. And some scholars have argued that warriors felt the same kind of a devotion to their human lords as they did to the divine ones, but I don't see much indication of that in the texts I'm reading. So are we just injecting our own culture into a text if we find a sentiment for which no exact Indian equivalent term exists? Last of all, let me raise a question about how to engage in the history of emotions with Rajput texts, which are often quite sparse in their uh, emotional terrain. That's not always the case, but that we get do, on the other hand, get texts like Dalpat Dilas, which is very prosaic, it's full of short declarative sentences. A king goes somewhere, he says something, he goes somewhere else. Um, there are very few emotion words in Dalpa Vilas and very few adjectives and adverbs. So some of the standard methods, uh, methods used by scholars of medieval Europe, like carefully counting emotion words or analyzing advice literature, don't work with early modern texts. 
this leaves us really primarily with a narrative that is the plot and the, what goes on in the, in the story as a means to think about emotion. Now, um, I'll end with one detail about Ram Singh that I haven't shared with you yet. So not long before he dies, the Chronicle tells us, and I quote, Meanwhile, the Ranoji's daughter, Ram Singh's wife, Amba, by name, died, upon which Ram, Ram Singhji became a renunciate, a viragya, he took vairagya. He would not have his beard shaved, nor would he have his clothes washed. He would never, neither wear his tunic, nor would he use a mirror, end quote. When Sultan and Prithiraj came to attend Amba's funeral, they saw Ram Singh in the state and repeatedly urged him to leave and come stay with them, and he finally did so. Later, after Ram Singh beseeches his brothers to stop plundering to no avail, he thinks to himself, quote, before there was only the grief, Dukkha, about Amba. On top of that, now there is the anxiety, Sanchita, about my brothers, end quote. So this is when he decides it would be better to die, and then right before he leapt out in front of the artillery fire, Ram Singh cut his hair and shaved his beard for the first time since his wife's death. Now, in these passages, there are only two emotion words, dukkha, grief, pain, unhappiness, and a Rajasthani word, santita, meaning concern or anxiety. These two words come in consecutive sentences as Ram Singh contemplates death. Yet way before this point, I personally found these passages to be awash with implied emotions, both Ram Singh's pain upon his wife's passing away and his brother's concern for him in the aftermath. So even if it might be misguided, even if I might be reading too much into the text, I chose to read this narrative as commemorating a 16th century warrior's love for his wife without whom he lost the will to live. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed, Cynthia. That was um, an absolutely wonderful talk, which took us into a colourful, dramatic and enormously exciting world. And it was great to have the illustrations alongside your the, the arguments and the names and, and the stories set out um, for us so well there. Um, whilst we wait to see if any folks from outside just have one or two questions, um, we're, we're running a little bit short of time, but if anyone would like to send in a question you, you, uh, via the Q&A box, you would be most welcome. Whilst we do that, I, I wonder if I could ask a question, um, which is really um, uh, 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 perhaps a familiar question, but I'd, from the perspective of this uh, history of emotion that you're uh, laying out for us here, um, uh, Something that uh, is, is quite commonly said about the Rajputs, um, particularly I think by Norman Ziegler, but others um, have said it too, um, is that what we see happening with the Rajputs um, under the Mughals is a, is a gradual shift from the horizontal um, values of brotherhood to the more vertical ties of lineage, of single lineages, as the Rajputs invented themselves as a, as a kind of category of protected Mughal royalty. Um, you'll be familiar with that argument about this is what's happening in Rajput society during the sort of the, the particularly during the 16th and early 17th centuries. Um, 
And I wondered if um, you could give us a sense of if, if you see that process happening, whether you could give us a sense of uh, of the implication for the worlds of brotherhood, um, ties between brothers, but also of ties between fathers and sons. Um, because if if one is dealing with with horizontal lineages and the expectation of loyalty amongst brotherhoods, um, that's one thing. But loyalty to a single family lineage, which in a way you've perhaps been dealing with here, that kind of loyalty, um, the, 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 the vertical ties between fathers and sons of, of a particularly eminent lineage, it implies a different set of, of emotional um, appeals. And I wonder if, if that's something that you see at all your material. Um, I do, first, first of all, I guess I, I actually see a little bit of a difference between Eastern Rajasthan and Western Rajasthan, and people don't tend to talk about that much. So, uh, for example, a lot of uh, Ziegler's work and his work with uh, Richard Saren, um, they, they keep talking about Rajasthan, but they're really talking about the Western half of Rajasthan, where I think it, it, there is a, a little bit of a difference because Eastern Rajasthan uh, developed states kind of earlier, it was, you know, a little bit more well settled and populated. But there is a gradual shift, you're absolutely right, uh, in that direction. And I think in the case of the Bikaner uh, family that I was talking about at the end, it's it's really startling to see uh, that you know, they're being caught between older ways of, of living, where the brothers all sort of, they, they, they all seem to have had a village or two, but they, you know, went out and supplemented their their livelihoods with this old style sort of cattle raiding kind of thing. Mm. And then um, uh, whereas the, the, you know, the older brother is really trying to centralize his power as the king. Uh, so I, I do see a gradual shift. Um, I think it, it was a little bit further along in the East. Um, but a couple of points, let's see if I can remember them all. Um, when I started, I had given this presentation once before as a shorter conference paper, and I was just I just picked out these episodes, and then it wasn't until after I had all three that I realized it was brothers against brothers. I was just looking for family uh, conflict, but you're absolutely right. It's also a father against son. But I think the father and son tie does continue very strongly, and I've noticed that a number of the chronicles. Um, like the Surajanacharita was probably commissioned by his son. Um, Raja Prashasti, which is a famous Sanskrit inscription uh, text from Mewar, uh, was probably commissioned by Ra Raj Singh's son. Um, uh, another one, Kamkan Raso, is full of uh, praise for the father. So I think that the, the, this, the, the tie with the father does continue uh, very strongly. I haven't really thought about it yet, so that's a, um, something for me to think more about. Uh, one other difference, I guess I was going to say, uh, in Eastern Rajasthan, I think to some extent, uh, these the, the kind of uh, uh, ruler-client tie had developed more strongly and earlier, but one of the big changes we see in Akbar's age is the kind of, uh, is that many of these uh, families like Bundi, they were kind of second tier, um, they had been clients of uh, Mewar, uh, but they, they weren't very... Um, 
kingly. And one of the things that happened, I've written about this before, is that with the once they become mansabdars, they have uh, sort of secure positions. And to some extent, it seems some of these families really became quite a bit more affluent. And so, um, you know, Surajan is able to go to Banaras and be a big benefactor, and he builds, you know, palaces and gives lots of money away uh, and uh, the like. So they they be they they are able to sort of adopt more kingly ways in a way once they've joined uh, the Mughal Empire. So, thank you. But the, yeah, the father and son issue is something I I do want to think more about. Thanks. Okay. Well, a, a question here from from uh, Richard Williams. Uh, uh, I think this must be the, the Richard Williams of SOAS, I hope. Yes. Uh, and, and he says, um, thank you, Cynthia. That was fascinating. Do you have a sense of these themes, brotherhood, loyalty, negotiation, being discussed in Rajput comportment literature, i.e. the Subhashita and Niti Shastra texts that were read and composed in these courts? Um, and and are there, is there an element of cautionary tales that are, um, uh, uh, do you see in the sources that you've described? Do, do the poets reflect on that these brothers did or didn't act correctly? Well, this is um, something then I'll have to ask Richard because I, I'm not really aware of this literature. Um, so if he knows of some that I should look at, I would certainly, because this is one of the troubling things so far as uh, there hasn't, there isn't, I'm not aware of much advice literature. And that's one of the first areas that most uh, historians of emotion go to is to see, you know, what, at least what is being prescribed in behavior. Yes. Um, but I'm just using stories instead, I guess, as models. That's why I was referring to the Mahabharata, for, especially, which really has a lot of currency, uh, even in early modern. Uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. OK, then, Cynthia, well, we're slightly we're, we're out of time. So we will thank Cynthia very much indeed. And um, we will leave you now. Um, I think we will now join our students if you log out of this meeting. Uh, Cynthia, and then rejoin uh, the students' meeting, which the link should be there um, on your screen. Okay. Thank I'll you very much indeed. Thank See you. you in a moment. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you.